It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Chris Foster. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu was on the rundown to talk about the Republican presidential race in his state and nationally. He announced over the summer he's not running for the Republican presidential nomination next year or for a fifth two-year term as governor. He also has a lot to say about politics in general. He's a good guest, and as usual, we spoke for about twice as long as we planned going in. Some of that needed cutting for time for the regular rundown podcast and radio show, but here we have all the time in the world. I enjoyed the conversation. Hope you do, too. Thanks for listening and subscribing. Now, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu on the Fox News Rundown Extra. All right, Governor, thanks for, thanks for coming back on the Fox News Rundown. Um, the other day, you said the Republican presidential race isn't over. Um, do you think that's because of external factors, like Trump will be forced out of the race, or, or, or because voter, voters will just coalesce around someone else? Um, so a couple things. First, it's it's only September, right? So there's no race is called by September. I, I kind of reference folks back to uh, previous races where you know people thought that Barack Obama guy couldn't beat the Clinton machine in 2008 and all that, and he was never going to have a chance to to beat that. Of course, that ended up happening. Um, you know, back in the days where uh, Herman Cain was, you know, said nine 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 and was leading in five or six national polls as late as November, yet he was out December. So my point there is that a lot of things can change. So what's going to happen is the voters are really going to coalesce, I mean, coalesce around one or two candidates to kind of that aren't Trump, alternatives to Trump. And then most importantly, the other candidates are going to get out of the race. Yeah. And when it's one-on-one, Trump loses, right? He, he's not going to be able to hold 50% vote if it were him and somebody else. There's just too many Republicans that are looking for somebody else. And so if you think of it this way, if eight candidates have the discipline to get out of the race, Trump loses. I mean, this really is up to the discipline of those candidates who all want Trump not to be the nominee, who have a common goal in that. But it's kind of like uh, as a, the MIT dork that I am, uh, it's, it's classic game theory. They all have the same interests, but they also have an internal interest that could work against the system. So if they have the discipline to get out, it's going to be Trump and somebody else. They coalesce around one other. Uh, if you do that by Super Tuesday, the sky's the limit for, for that other candidate. They get the political momentum. They start winning states. You get to the convention. And next thing you know, Trump is, uh, you know, thanks, thanks for coming. Thanks for trying. But it, it, we're moving on and actually talking about the future of America as opposed to litigating the past. Yeah. I mean, gaming it out in your head. And you don't know exactly what's going to happen in the next debate, for example, which is September 27th. So far, there's six people that are expected to be on stage. Um, in your mind, do you see that that being do you, do you see that being a winnowing down point where one or two people are like, look, even especially the people that don't make the stage? Oh, sure. Look, there were 13 people in the race six weeks ago. Eight of them got onto the first stage, as you said. Probably six get onto the next stage. So, I mean, we're clearly winnowing down the field, and it's it's barely, uh, and that'll happen before even October happens. We're in October, so if you can get to five or six candidates, maybe one or two, if you can get one or two out of the race by the time December comes, you have four or five candidates going into Iowa, three or four going into New Hampshire. Well, now after New Hampshire, you can say, okay, here's the candidate to really challenge Donald Trump. And so if, you, if, you, if people kind of play the patient game, let the voters have a say, let the candidates earn 
what they can on the ground with retail politics, earn what they can nationally with the debates. Those are very important parts of the process. Let that happen. Um, there's, there's no reason this can't come out for a huge win for the Republican Party, which is, again, it's not personal. I don't have anything personal against the former president. It's simply... You just don't think he, he can win. We, he had very good ideas. He had some very good ideas, but he didn't, he didn't capitalize on. He told us he was going to secure the border. He didn't. He told us he was going to be fiscally disciplined. He wasn't. He told us he was going to drain the swamp and get rid of the bureaucracy. He didn't. Like, not just the opposite. Actually, government got bigger under him. So let's get a conservative in there that carries a lot of those same policies and ideals, but can fulfill on them. That's just the fundamental difference. Thanks. Thank you for your service, sir. But we're just moving on. I mean, one more on the former president, then, then I'm happy to move on. But you, you talked about something here that I've talked about with other with pollsters and other and others. Trump has a very, very solid floor of his ride or dies that they're going to follow him no matter what. Um, but he doesn't have much room to grow that support. His floor and his ceiling are pretty close, right? Look, the fact that he's a former incumbent president, head of the Republican Party, and his ceiling is below 50% of his own base, that's terrible. I mean, that's, that's really actually a terrible number considering the position that he was in. He almost, he's almost campaigning trying to convince people he wasn't already president before, right? <laughs> oh, I'm the same, he's the same disruptor that he was in 2016. No, you've been there, man. You're part of that establishment. You're part of the failures of that system, unfortunately. We still believe in a lot of those conservative ideals, but we need someone that knows how to actually implement them, because if, if you can't get it done, you can't get it done. And most importantly, this is a really big thing that I think is going to come more to bear in the coming months. Trump affects the entire ticket in a negative way. He affects Republicans. Republicans down the ballot, the governors, the congressmen, the school board members, the planning board, right, the, the House and Senate seats in your, in your local states, those are all affected. They all kind of have to answer to that brand now. And we lose independence in droves when we have to do that. So I want Republicans to be selfish. I want them to, to understand that they, uh, what happens locally is even more important sometimes than what happens nationally. And if they have Trump on top of the ticket, we're going to lose all these other seats that I know we want to win, but we're going to lose them. You know why I know that? Because we lost in 18, we lost in 20, we lost in 22. We've lost three consecutive elections with him as the top brand of the Republican Party. It's not working, guys. You can't keep doing the same thing and ex somehow expect a different result. And again, it comes down to all those, the other six, seven candidates. If those six candidates can have the discipline to say, it's not working, there's no more path, I'm getting out right now, when they have the discipline to get out and make it a one-on-one -on -one race, that's how Trump loses. So, look, it's, it's, I don't mean to say this whole race comes down to the decisions of six individuals, but those six candidates really hold uh, the, nom the, the ultimate decision of whether Trump is the nominee or not. If they stay in too long, Trump's going to be the nominee and we're all going to lose. If they have the discipline to get out, which they say they do, but it's a different story whether they really will or not. Um, uh, and I think there'll be a lot of pressure for them to do so. There's a huge opportunity for the Republican Party to not just get a winning candidate on the presidential side, but have a kind of championed brand message, galvanizing opportunity for independents and suburban moms and young voters who we've lost in droves. We need them back to win. And that's the huge opportunity that I think will get capitalized on come January, February, and March of next year. Well, what could really complicate that is F. <clears throat> excuse me, is let's say somebody wins Iowa, somebody else wins New Hampshire, and then things are kind of, and then, or, or finishes second, finish third, and then, it, but, but it, and it's murky, that nobody's, nobody's risen to the top, that you get three people, for example, who are all eh, about as successful. 
uh, when you hit Super Tuesday. Well, that's okay. You'll still have South Carolina, Florida, Nevada, some of those other early states, and then uh, I'm not sure where Florida is. I think they're pretty early. And then as long as that, you know, you, you keep winning way down, it really comes down to having a one-on-one race before Super Tuesday, I think. Um, and I think by then, it won't just be Chris Sununu or one person here saying, hey, you should get out. You're going to have a chorus of Republican leadership voices, a chorus of voices from the Republican donor base, uh, the money, if you will, that, that supports these candidates saying, hey, we tried. It's not working. You got to we got to point, you know, you got to for the sake of the party, for the sake of the country, you got to get out of the race is a discipline and a responsibility to that. So we will. It's not that it has to be decided one on one right after New Hampshire. It could be. Um, but shortly thereafter, you know, as long as it's before Super Tuesday, where you start to get to the winner-take-all states, where all the delegates go to the winner, I think that's that's what you have to capitalize. Yeah. The New Hampshire primary is, I don't know, give or take, 18 weeks, something like that. Am I about right? Um, for, it's certainly less than five months. Um, what's the latest with your primary calendar? Um, I, I don't know if the, what's up with the... Uh, I know that the plan is to buck the Democratic National Committee. Well, the Democratic National Committee was supposed to make a decision today and they said or uh, yeah this week and they said ah we're going to delay it one more month they keep stalling into i mean joe biden and the democrat national committee are becoming an absolute joke look we are going first it does i don't we don't care we're not beholden to anything that they say we're going first with our primary process if if iowa the the democrat uh, the Republican leadership in Iowa is spot on. They're doing a great job. They know exactly what their role is in managing a caucus and doing a good job with the caucus. The Democrat leadership in Iowa is completely screwing it up. If they try to do a primary, then we're going to have to go ahead of them. I think there's a consensus in the state that that would have to happen. It's per our law. We can't go second. So um, that's going to happen no matter what. I don't know what games they're playing. I think they know they've screwed this up so badly. And now they, they're trying to save face or get out of it or have some type of plan that gets out of it. But they've become an absolute joke. And this is all Joe Biden's fault because he wanted to, again, personally gift, which is kind of his M.O. with everything he does in government, use his influence to personally gift and give something to those that supported him, specifically in South Carolina, um, to try to make them the first. But it's it's we're going first. I mean, that's really all there is to it. And in doing that and saying that, he's created this a domino effect of chaos. I mean, real chaos within the uh, primary process for the Democrat Party. But here in New Hampshire, both the Democrat and Republicans will go first. Uh, hopefully it'll be sometime in, in, you know, late January, something like that. But if the Democrats play games, um, we're, we're not, we don't play games in New Hampshire. We're just going to follow our law and put ours ahead of theirs. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. We talk a lot, of course, about New Hampshire every four years since it's since it is the first. Does New Hampshire? T- I haven't looked back. Does New, Ham- New Hampshire tend to pick winners? I and mean, we know it can at least change the conversation, change the momentum, like you said. Um, often you know, we we uh, yes, so we uh, we have a great history of picking pr- the president. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Biden was one of the anomalies there because Biden was just such a bad retail politician. He didn't like to talk to people. He didn't like to engage with the press or anything. And again, he cut his political deals in South Carolina. And the Democrat Party tends to be the party where influencers push the vote for everybody. But we don't do that on the Republican side. The voters decide. We don't insist that the voters just follow our lead. Our voters are smart. They're engaged. 
They're very intelligent. They ask the tough questions, and they're going to put all the candidates through their paces, and they're going to make their own decisions, as they should. Uh, Democrats tend to be just kind of lemmings that follow uh, the leader. It's exactly what happened in South Carolina. So Joe Biden kind of gave up on New Hampshire, uh, went to South Carolina, and that's what gave him a lot of momentum, to his credit. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's, he knew how to play the Democrat game. There's no games on the Republican side. It's just earning the votes uh, on our side. Um, I don't know if you know him at all or how well you know Mitt Romney. He's not running again for the Senate. He, you know, he's someone who's talked like you um, a lot about bipartisanship. He was um, he was a Republican governor in a purple-blue state, more blue than purple probably, uh, in Massachusetts. Now, it seems like a million years ago that he was the Republican presidential nominee. He was the most recent guy before Trump. Um, and you have, no, you have no problem like him working with a lot of Democrats. Is the atmosphere, do you think, keeping people who might be good candidates away from seeking higher office. Romney also you know, is talking about his age as a factor, too. But um, do you think that there are people who are like, yeah, I don't want to be part of this? Uh, there's no doubt about that. First, I have a, a lot of respect for Mitt Romney. Don't agree with him on everything. Um, but, boy, there is a, a gentleman that just uh, votes and speaks his heart. And yet you can never fault anybody for that. Um, and I just have a, a, an immense amount of respect for him and what he's done for the country. Um, there's no doubt there's a lot of good leadership in this country, potential good leadership that is not engaging in the public sector, that is not engaging in public service. And that's that's a shame. And that's why I get so vocal about this stuff, because I want folks to know there is a path here. Now, the real reason, I mean, if you want to get to the core of why this is, it isn't just that people decided to get angry and more polarized. Um, it, a, a lot, most of it, I think, stems from gerrymandering. Uh, really bad management of social media, and really bad campaign finance laws. Um, gerrymandering is a really hard thing to undo, right? But we used to have 150 congressional seats in this country that were fairly back and forth, right? They were very winnable by either party if you had a good enough candidate. But through gerrymandering, you've now created only about 50 seats. So many of them are locked up either Republican or Democrat, which means if you're a Democrat in a Democrat district, you're going to go way left now because you're more afraid of being primaried than facing a general election opponent. Same with the, with, the, with the Republicans. You're a Republican in a Republican district. You're going to go way right because I don't want a primary. That's my biggest fear. I'm not going to lose to the Democrat. I'm more worried about getting primary. So it creates, gerrymandering creates this massive polarization throughout the country. I'm the only governor in the country that did not sign a redistricting bill because even my fellow Republicans were trying to make it so we had one solid Republican district, one solid Democrat district. I said, look, I'm a Republican. I'm not giving a Democrat a job for life. Like that's no. I think we can. A good candidates can always win any seat, and so you want to keep them. And, and New Hampshire's a very purple state, and we're very open-minded. Candidate quality matters. We should never be locking anything up. So that's a real problem. I think campaign finance has created a lot of the polarization here because these crazy laws with this dark money pack. Basically, you can get extremists to rock the boat, stall the process. We're seeing that right now in Washington, right? Their demands for the impeachment and all that. The the only reason they're doing that is to raise money. Here's the inside word from a, one of the, if I made the politi- leading re- Republican voices across the country. The only reason they're doing that is to raise more money. That's a problem. I'm not saying there's not validity behind the impeachment, by the way. There very well may be. But believe me, the number one priority there is to raise money. So that in itself is a problem. And then finally, for coming from a, a smaller state, you know, most smaller states have this problem. Let's say you have a U.S. Senate race. 90%, 95% of the money spent on that Senate race will be from outside of the state. It'll be from messaging and ideas, uh, supporting a candidate that you might support, but with messaging and, and drive that has nothing to do with your state. So it becomes very manipulative and, and problematic. 
all of these things factor into candidates being like, I'm not going to be part of this process. It's too negative, too attacking. Your family's under too much scrutiny. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why, I, look, I, I think every public servant should, should you know, understand if there's a limit. I believe in term limits. I'm not going to, after four terms, I'm not going to, I'm choosing not to run again. Um, I'm not, I chose not to run for president. But, you know, one of the reasons was it's just so brutal on families. I mean, it really is. It's, it's been very hard on my wife and my kids. And I'm not the only one. Trust me, we all talk about it, as all the governors, and we all talk about it. And um, uh, for us, it was particularly hard because we are kind of at the, the front and, and uh, of the vocal piece of, of a lot of the politics in the country. But all of this plays into, unfortunately, good people sitting it out. Now, here's, here's the good news. I'm sorry for the long answer, but here's the good news. I'm an engineer. I, I understand uh, mathematics and everything in life works in cycles. I think we're in a, a tough cycle right now. I think there will be some changes to the system as well as some pushback where folks start saying, look, I just want people that get stuff done. I believe in that. And I think there, there will be a, a swinging tide to, uh, to folks that kind of demand accountability. Um, our, this country's strong. People that say, oh, this country, democracy is, uh, you know, is going to fall apart and all that. Guys, we faced a civil war. We faced assassinations in the Vietnam War in 68. We faced external threats on 9-11 and, and the attack and the, the murder of thousands of our citizens on 9-11 uh, from, from other parts of the world. We went through the pandemic. We went through January 6th, but guess what? Guess what happened the afternoon of January 6th? They met. They certified the election. We had a peaceful transfer of power. Our institutions have always stood the test of time. And so I really, that's why I'm so optimistic about the future. And I think not enough people talk about this, that this country is foundationally solid. We disagree on policy. We could become more socialist, which would drive me crazy. We could get really bad policy. But that doesn't mean the institutions themselves are fundamentally broken or we're broken as a country. And for that, we should have a lot of optimism that the, the most important aspects of our country that, that allow the citizens to create the change that we want to see, those are still true and those are still available to all of us, even if we're not seeing you know, what we want to see out of Washington or elected leaders today. So that's kind of the reason that as much as, you know, we can talk about folks not wanting to get into the game, I think there'll be a, a, a cyclic change to that. And I think our institutions are so strong that they will allow that opportunity to come to fruition in the future. Chris Anunu, the 82nd governor of oh, New Hampshire. I feel, I feel yeah. so bad. No, <laughs> I, I, you know something? I, no, you, that was that was beautiful. I, I sat back, I put my feet up, and I... It was... I'm sorry. I, got, yeah, I, started, uh, I started pontificating. But I do believe that. I really do. I get very passionate about it. I think there's a lot of optimism. It's easy to get bogged down in the negativity, man, but I, I really do believe in the optimism and the, and the foundations of it. I'm in California right now. I'm in San Francisco right now. Believe me, there is nothing more politically or structurally different than New Hampshire, the live for your die state, than standing in San Francisco, a couple blocks from the Tenderloin, where, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand people wander these streets homeless, without, med- without mental health services, in open-air drug markets. It's, it's chaos here. It's just wild. And it's a beautiful, wonderful city that has been led so badly. But my message is this. It can be fixed. It can be changed. And people have to have that hope and optimism to be that foundational agent of the change. I lived here for three years, and almost this was always a, a problem here, but it is so out of control now. It's not too far gone. No one should ever feel anything in this country is too far gone, because we as individuals really still hold the power if we have the discipline to engage in the process, be part of it. Um, and that's why, going all the way back to your opening question about Trump, that's why I still believe that Trump doesn't need to be, and there's still a lot of opportunity for Republicans who don't want him to be the, the flag bearer of this party, if they just come out and vote and partake in the process, 
we're going to be just fine as a party and get this country back on track. Let me ask you, you've been, you've spoken very freely. I know you've, you've always kind of been this way, but, but I think especially in the past, whatever, six months, eight months, nine months, 10 months, you've been out there a lot. Do you feel a freedom now that you're not running for anything? Um, do you think you could be speaking as freely as you are um, about the party and about politics if you weren't running for anything right now? Well, I've never or been because you are being coy. Yeah, I mean, look, I put it this way. I would just getting probably getting my, into myself, myself into a little more political trouble uh, than, than I would. But I, look, I just speak the way I speak. I let the chips fall where they may. I don't overthink the politics. Um, I'm not asking people to agree with everything I believe. My wife doesn't agree with everything I believe, right? That's okay. That's, that's totally cool, man. Everyone has a chance to bring their voice to the table. I try to have an empathetic ear to the other side. So I think it's okay to speak freely, even as, a, as an official, to be a little bit unabashed, as long as a couple things. Uh, do your best not to be rude, right? Not to do, do things per, you know, with the personal attacks and all that. Talk about policy. Be able to explain where you're coming from. Be completely transparent. And if you're doing that, people appreciate the frankness. They appreciate the open conversation. And then, have, and then take a step back, have an open ear, and listen. Okay, what, what do, you know, when somebody says something, we, we, talk, we talk about disagree better. It's this great initiative of the National Governors Association, led by Spencer Cox of Utah, actually, to say, look, let's have all these discussions. And when we engage with someone that vehemently disagrees with us and are saying things that we might think, oh, man, this person's crazy with their ideas, you know what you say then? Don't, don't try to explain why you're right and they're wrong. Say, tell me more. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not there. Explain, tell me a little bit more. So if we all go into conversations with that kind of attitude, even though we're passionate on one side, holy cow, does the temperature come down? You build relationships better. You be, you're more transparent. And you don't start demonizing the other side. And if we can build a, a better repertoire of that, a better a habit of that. I really believe a lot of these other issues of polarization and extremism, that gets all really pushed aside. And the 80% of us that are might be Democrat or Republican, but are still kind of rational and in the middle and don't just want to play to the extremes, boy, we're going to go, hey, we got this thing back on track. And you know what? The institutions are sound. My voice is still heard. I can still cast a vote. All of those things still come to bear at the end of the day. We just need to get a little more mature and a little more disciplined about our approach to these things. So, you know, yeah, I, I don't mind being unabashed. I think maybe maybe I'm a little bit more uh, unleashed now that I'm not running for anything, a little bit more, but I've always been pretty candid with folks, and 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 I guess in a way politically rewarded for it because I'm you know, still, still pretty popular, as I pat myself on the back. <laughs> All politicians are really good at patting themselves sure. on the back, by the way. But, um, but I think that's probably why uh, I've been able to, be fairly popular, even though people disagree with me, because I, I really try to have an approach that invites everybody to the table. And you'd have no problem. Uh, like I, I, I know a lot of Republicans in Maine, for example, to your northeast, who are very angry with uh, Governor Janet Mills. You would have no problem sitting down for lunch in Portsmouth or Portland with Janet Mills and, and having a, a perfectly fine time, right? I had breakfast with Janet Mills two mornings ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Jen and I get along great. I disagree with her on, on a lot of things. Maura Healy in Massachusetts, disagree with her. Uh, Phil Scott in, in Vermont, he's a Republican, but, man, he's got to hold the line against these really, really socialist, quasi-communist legislature in Vermont. God bless them. Uh, Ned and Dan uh, in Connecticut and uh, the governor of Rhode Island had dinner with Dan McKee, had dinner with Phil Murphy of New Jersey. Look, Phil and I disagree on politics vehemently. I consider Phil Murphy a really good friend. I think he's a really funny guy. He's actually quite personable. We get along wonderfully. 
he's a Patriots fan, a New England Patriots fan. So I, so he gets some dispensation with me because of that, because we're both Patriots fans. But no, especially as governors, we all get along very, very well. We'll have tough discussions, tough discussions on energy, on opioids, on mental health, on this woke nonsense that I think is just absolutely horrible. I'm very anti-woke. But that's, I don't just come in with that and say, well, we disagree, so we're not going to talk. No, no way, man. I'll talk to anyone about anything, especially New England governors who have so much common interest across our borders. Well, and speaking of, good luck to uh, you and Governor Huey and Governor Mills with this hurricane coming. It's, I know it's something you don't often have to deal with uh, there. I guess you just kind of treat it like a snowstorm without the snow. Uh, well, no, nah, yeah, a little bit. Look, we, I, so I was talking, we were all texting together two mornings ago. Uh, on a couple things, we had localized, really aggressive localized flooding in uh, southern New Hampshire, northern Mass. That's why Mora couldn't come to breakfast with us. The hurricane is really going to hit Maine. Um, we all text, and we're all there saying, what do you need? What do you need? Do you need National Guard? Do you need swift boat rescue teams? Uh, I sent my Blackhawk helicopters to Vermont during their massive floods in, uh, in earlier this summer. So we always share resources and ideas, and we're always there for each other. So I know I could pick up the phone to any of them and say, hey, I need, a, I need uh, some mutual aid. I need uh, first responders, whatever it is, to help you know, rescue folks on, in submerged areas. And they can call on me. And within moments, we're responding. No questions asked. Governor Snoodoo, good to talk to you again. Uh, governor of the tax-free suburb of Boston, uh, live free or die, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, governor Snoodoo, thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.